I'd like to open with a prayer from Mother Teresa. O absent one, how long will you stay away? I long for you, but you do not want me. Emptiness, pain, loneliness, I cannot express this pain. This is what hell is like. Without God, no love, no faith, the pain is so great, I feel as if everything will break. Who am I that you would forsake me? Do not let my soul be deceived. Do not let me deceive anyone. Please, God, do not let me spoil the work. The work is yours. That's from Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was a Christian who spent her life serving the orphans, the poor, the homeless, the destitute. Her love for Jesus was so powerful, it overflowed and it flooded the streets of Calcutta to the point that she was given a Nobel Peace Prize. Yet, she described these long periods of her life where she wrestled with this slow, silent pain and suffering and loneliness and despair. And if you've been alive for, for longer than two seconds, you know what pain and suffering are like. I'm, I'm sure most of us gathered today are in not a great season, right? No one would really look back on these last two years and say this has been a high point of our lives. And yet when I look at these, these words of Mother Teresa, her longing, her crying, her, her doubts, her questioning, I see her words and I see something that I recognize. I see myself in her words. When I, when I read the Bible, I see myself in there. Uh, sometimes I feel like, the disciple being tossed by the waves and it seems like Jesus is, is asleep. I am Mary and Martha. I'm wrapping the body of my brother and laying it in the tomb and it seems like Jesus is nowhere to be found. I cry with the psalmist, with Jesus, and I say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These dark seasons, these dark nights of the soul, these periods of pain and just long suffering, it's, it's inevitable in a fallen and broken world. It's not if you feel this, but when. And to, uh, to, quote, to quote the philosopher Rocky Balboa, he said, this life will beat you to your knees and it'll keep you there if you let it. So the question for Christians, the, the challenge for Christians is this. Um, if we don't walk wisely, these seasons can destroy us rather than help us grow. They can lead to our destruction rather than our sanctification. So when we are in these challenging seasons, the question is, where is God? This is what David gets asked in Psalm 42. His enemies say to him, you're suffering, where is your God? And so for the next four weeks, we are going to be looking through the Psalms and answering this question, where is God? Where is God in these seasons of my life? And I wanna, I wanna distinguish at the outset. When we're asking, where is God? We're not asking, why would God? 
These are actually different. When you approach the topic of, of pain, of suffering, of, of evil, of God's hiddenness and distance and perceived abandonment, there's two types of responses you can give. You can give a pastoral response or a philosophical response. Humans have hearts and we have heads. And the answer that you give, it can be targeted towards one or the other, sometimes both. So a philosophical response, it would examine premises and proofs, pieces of evidence, uh, laws of logic, and the entailment of these arguments to give a response for why God would allow these things to happen. Christianity, it has a rich and deep tradition of philosophy, of answers to these questions, rigorous analytic answers. And I would encourage you to search out these resources in your own time. But that is not what we're looking at for the next four weeks. For the next four weeks, we're looking at pastoral responses to this question of pain and suffering. And when I say pastoral, I mean shepherding, counseling, and caring responses to this, questions that aim at the heart. Let me, let me give an example, okay. Imagine, imagine someone's in the hospital and their six-month-old child has just passed away because they got T-boned by a, a drunk driver. And they ask you, why would God let this happen? If you gave a philosophical response, you would say something along the lines of, well, the existence of evil and the existence of God are logically compatible. In a world of agents with significantly uh, degree, pardon me, with significant degrees of freedom, it makes sense that there would be evil in the world. You know, this isn't even very surprising. It's what you would expect in a fallen world of sinful creatures. That would not be appropriate. That would be unhelpful. That would be cruel. That's, that's the damage of a misplaced answer. This is what a pastoral answer would look like. They say, why would God let this happen? <clears throat> I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I don't know why he would let this happen. I know that God loves your child. I know that your child is, is with God right now, that your child isn't suffering, they're not in pain right now. I know that God weeps when we weep and that he is also with you right now in, in your pain, that you also are not alone. So you see the difference in targeting the head and the heart. We're creatures of cognition and affection. And it's important to know when to address one and when to address the other. I've got stacks of books on evil and pain and suffering from studying philosophy that does not help me in the midst of it when I've also got a heart problem as well. So uh, <laughs> there is a, one, of the, one of the books on my shelf, it's called Philosophy for Dummies. I, I'm the target market. And there's a quote in there, it says this. It says, knowledge is power, but wisdom is perspective. Knowledge is power, but wisdom is perspective. Wisdom is knowing when to address the head and the heart. So today and for the next four weeks, we're gaining wisdom from God's word. If you think of the Christian life as a spiritual battle, I think, this is just Sawyer's opinion, I think that many of the casualties that we suffer are by friendly fire, that a lot of damage and hurt we suffer within the church is because of us not being able to support each other well when we are in these challenging seasons. 
So by studying the Psalms, we're going to see how to live well and how to love well, both personally and communally. To do so, we're looking at the Psalms. The Psalms are songs. They're poems. They are the raw emotional soul of the human life. And they serve as a template for how to walk faithfully through these seasons. They can model for us how to act and react. Augustine, he said this, if the Psalm prays, you pray. If it laments, you lament. If it exalts, you rejoice. If it hopes, you hope. If it fears, you fear. Everything written here is a mirror for us. So we're going to walk through these, see what the psalmist says, and we're going to pull this into our lives today. When we ask this question, where is God? We're going to be looking at where is God in my disappointment today? We're really asking this question, how do I find God in my disappointment? How do I find him? Where do I look? The first thing that we see in Psalm 42 is this. How do I find God in my disappointment? Number one, learn to lament. Lament. From the first line of the Psalm, David is presenting this, this visceral depiction of desperation, just as a deer, a wild animal, a beast needs water to survive, so too do I need God. I need the living God. I don't need a concept. I don't need an idea. I need living water from the living God. There's, there's videos online of animals doing desperate things when they're in need of water. Uh, in Australia, there's hikers going down these paths and koalas jump out of trees or flop out of trees. I don't know how koalas can jump. And they latch themselves onto people hoping for water. David is saying this, God, this place is a desert. It's dry, it's barren, and I am in need. He's lamenting. Lamenting, lamenting is this. This is, this is my 130 characters or less definition. Lamenting is turning to God when sorrow tempts you to turn from God. Lamenting is, it's not something that we do well in this particular pocket of Christianity that we occupy. We think of it as uh, just complaining. It's just being sad. It's lacking faith, but it's, it's nothing of the sort. Lament is, it's talking to God about our pain. Yes, yes, of course, but it has a unique purpose. Trust. Yes. It's a divinely given invitation from God to pour out our fears, our frustrations and sorrows for the purpose of us to actually renew our confidence in God. Take the example of Job. That, that's a, there's a lot to do there. Okay, take this example of Job. Job, he, he tore his robes. He cried out and it says that he did not sin. He Cursed the day he was born. I wish I had never been born. This is awful. This is miserable. It'd be better if none of this happened. His friends show up and they tell him to shut up. They rebuke his complaining. And in Job 42, God rebukes them. He says, you have spoken falsely of me. You friends who rebuke Job in his lamenting, you have not represented me truthfully. Go and make sacrifices. 
Get Job to pray for you because I will listen to him. That's a fun chapter. You can think of lament here. Let's put it in, in four parts. I'm, I'm pulling these four parts. There's this great Christian book called Dark Clouds and Deep Mystery. It's about lamenting. These are the four parts that the author lays out there. Step one of lament. Turn to God. We orient ourselves to face him. And we see David do that at the outset. From verse one, he says, God, I'm desperate. I have thirst. Do you have thirst in this season? Do you have pain? Do you have this longing? First, orient yourself to God. And two, bring your complaint. Lament does feature an element of complaint. Let's look at verses nine and 10. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So more than just a, a sinful rehearsal of our anger, lament humbly and honestly, it identifies the pain the questions, the frustration, and the raging of our soul. There is an honesty there. And lament also, lament shows that your pain, it's, it's legitimate. It's real. It's, it's important. It's something that God wants to hear. It's not something for you to shush and put off to the side. First Peter 5, 7. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. So God already knows your heart. There's no use in stuffing it away. Let him know. But we don't just stop at the complaint. Step three is this, ask boldly for help. Seeking God's help in the face of your pain, this is an act of faith. We don't give in to, there's, there's at least two wrong responses. You can give in to despair or you can give in to denial. Despair says this, there is no hope. And denial says this, there's no problem. There's no hope or there's no problem. Despair and denial both do not invite God into the pain. Instead this, we ask boldly for help. We say, God, this is awful. This is miserable. This is painful. I am upset and I need you. And step four is this. Choose to trust. This is also, I'm going to get into this more in the, the final point, but I'll say this briefly. Let's look at verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So David is wrestling with himself. Why do you feel this way? Why am I downcast? This wrestle with himself. He's still in the thick of it and he's choosing to trust God. He may not feel like it. He's in the thick of the wrestle and he speaks to himself. He says, why are you downcast? Hope in God for I shall again praise him. And this is the final destination of our lamenting. The prayerful language of lament, it moves us to renew our commitment to trusting God once again, to be for us what we cannot be for ourselves. That is the gospel. So this is how we talk to God about our sorrows as we're renewing our hope in his sovereign prayer. 
prayer. prayer. In this book, Dark Clouds and, and Deep Mercy, uh, there was a line that struck me. It said this, to cry is human, but to lament is Christian. To cry is human. There's, there's no surprise that there are ample reasons for misery and sadness and crying in a broken world like this. But to lament is Christian because it sees the wickedness and the brokenness, but it recognizes it as only part of the picture. And we choose to expand our perspective. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it is a, a glorious message. So I'm going to return to this later. But so far, what we've seen in Psalm 42 is this. It's modeling that we can run to God in our disappointment by coming to him, by pouring out our hearts, by boldly coming before the throne of God and calling upon him once again. Lament is this, uh, N.T. Wright, he made five Ps. Lament is, I'm only going to say four, I forget the fifth one. Lament is proof of the relationship. It's a pathway to intimacy. It's a prayer for God to act and it's participation in the pain of others. I'll also get to that later. So how do I find God in my disappointment? Step one, learn to lament. What's the second thing that we see in the Psalms? Psalm 42, how do I find God in my disappointment? Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. Let's look at this. David does something that's, uh, that's, that, that is along this. No, it is this in verses five and six. Why are you cast down, O my soul? This is kind of what I just read. Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So he's talking to himself. David isn't just listening to himself. He's responding. Why are you cast down? Hope in God. Second Corinthians 10.5 taking every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. There's a, a fantastic book um, on this subject. It's by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's called Spiritual Depression. Some people refer to what we see in Psalm 42 as spiritual depression. I'm, I'm purposefully trying to avoid uh, words and terms that have clinical connotations as well. Not that I don't think they're accurate. I'm just trying to stay away from confusion. But he says this about Psalm 42. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not organized them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self, himself, to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? It's an old book. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. It's interesting when contemporary areas of, of study and knowledge and inquiry also pick up on things that are in God's word. In uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, it says that thoughts and feelings and behaviors are all connected. And it focuses on cleansing or refining self-talk. Maybe other elements of counseling do this as well. I'm just, I don't know, not a counselor. But it talks about 
not only listening to yourself in the morning, but responding to yourself. And as the Christian, we do this because we know that these thoughts, these whispers that come to us when you wake up in the morning or the, the worst is for me, it's, it's those, those terrifying few minutes when I'm trying to fall asleep. You know, there's like two minutes between when you put down the phone and when you fall asleep. And that's scary. And those things from the back of your mind come to the front. And especially when you're in these seasons of disappointment, it's, it's, it's so tempting to begin to believe the lies because in these dark seasons, the lies look more true than the truth itself. Lies about ourselves, lies about others, lies about God. They just creep in. What are, what are some of these lies? Here's some. I will never recover from this. No one will love me. I'm useless. I'm stupid. I'm ugly. I'm alone. Everyone is judging me. Everyone's looking down on me. God doesn't care about me. God doesn't care about this. You can't fix this. You're not good enough. What, what, are, what are the things that come to you? That could be an exercise. Actually, write this down. Here are questions you could ask yourself. When you hear this, this voice in your mind, you can ask yourself this. One, is this true? Is this true? Is this how God sees me? Is this speaking out of faith or out of fear? And then on the flip side, what is the truth? What is God actually saying to me? We take every thought captive because what we think influences what we feel and what we do. But on this own, uh, this would seem incomplete, right? This isn't just don't think bad thoughts. It's, oh, you have depression. Well, just stop. Oh, I'm, I'm really wrestling with, with this anxiousness. Oh, well, just, just don't think that. That's, that's not quite true. So what does David do after he takes his thoughts captive? This isn't just don't think bad things. You don't just pull out the untrue thoughts. We do ask ourselves what is true, but it looks like this. Where is God in my disappointment? This is the third step. It's kind of the, the completion. You preach to yourself, but when you preach to yourself, this is what you do. You reorder your hopes. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Verse 11. And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. It's not just... Why are you downcast? Hope in life. It'll, it'll get better. Things will turn around eventually. Just suck it up. That's not true. And there's no guarantee of that in and of itself. If we're just looking at our circumstances, we reorder our hopes, not in this present place, but in the glorious truth of the gospel. Verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There's another possible translation of verse 2, and it says this. When will I come and see the face of God? David's wondering, I'm in this fog. I'm in these seasons of gray. I'm, I'm downcast. I'm disappointment. I'm, I'm disappointment. I'm disappointed. I'm lethargic. When will I see God's face? He's not looking for a premise or a proof. He's looking for the person. When will I see God's face? This question is answered 
It's answered in Jesus. There's two places we get this answer. John 14, 9 and 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Jesus said this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you have seen God. The Word became flesh. In John 14, 9, Paul said that when we are converted into Christ, when we join the family of faith, God's new kingdom, his new people, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, this is seen by us. We see this. When will I see God? When you see Jesus. So on this side of the cross, on this side of history, we know this is the greatest source for our hope. It is Jesus. We see all of Scripture pointing forwards and backwards, depending on which half of the Bible you're in, to the person and work of Christ. The resurrection, the victory, the triumph over sin and death and the brokenness of the world and the suffering of our season. If the psalmist, if David was living on this side of history, he would preach this to himself. So we learn to preach to ourselves. We reorder our hopes. My hope is now in something bigger than what I see around me. Here's an example of this, because maybe you think, I'm not, a, I'm not a preacher. How do I preach to myself? Do I just give myself a little pep talk? If you don't know what to say, try preaching scripture to yourself. If you want to lament and you don't know what to lament, you've got Psalms of lament. Try this. I'm going to walk us through Romans 8, just a portion of this. I'm not going to do too much because i got to preach on Romans 8 soon and I don't want to use up all the good points. Romans 8. I want us to read this out loud together. And I've, I've taken some, some license. There's parts where it's going to say in brackets, it might just say name. And I want you to say your name. In some parts it's going to say brackets. It'll just say me. Say the words me. In your disappointment, in your despondency, in your pain, this is how we preach to ourselves. Romans 8, 31. It'll be on your screen. Follow along with me, please. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for you, Sawyer, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for me, how will he not also with him graciously give me all things. Who shall bring any charge against me? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is how we preach to ourselves. That is how we reorder our hopes. So for you, for you watching today, 
Maybe you are in the midst of your own season of disappointment, of pain, of suffering. Where is God in my disappointment? Where is God in my bankruptcy? Where is God in my infertility, in my miscarriage? Where is God in my divorce? Where is God in my relapse into addiction? Where is God in my depression? Where is God in my failure? in your exhaustion, in your disappointment, would you come to him? You don't have to be put together to be calm, to be happy, to be smiley. The the, the psalm shows quite the opposite. But would you come to him in this? Mother Teresa, a different prayer of hers, she's talking about, no, this was a letter, this was a letter. She was talking about in these seasons, how she would come to God. This is what she said. Sometimes, I just hear my own heart cry out, my God, and nothing else comes. The torture and the pain, I can't explain. Before I could spend hours before God, before our Lord, loving him, talking to him, and now not even meditation goes properly, nothing but my God. Even that sometimes does not come. Yet deep down somewhere in my heart, that longing for God keeps breaking through in the darkness. Even in the darkness, this breaks through. Do you know this hope? Do you need to be reminded of this hope? Do you need people to help remind you of this, to help you lament? to help you preach to yourself, to help you reorder your hopes. Because all of these, I've been really uh, convicted, I don't know, but interested in this truth that for any great truth, any great point of theology or encouragement in scripture, it has a personal application, of course, but I also try and think what's the communal implication of this? So when we're reading, how do we walk well? And you think, well, I'm doing pretty good right now, actually. This sermon still applies to you. At the start of, uh, there's a, a book by Bob Goff. It's called Everybody Always. And he's talking about parachuting with his son. And he brings up this very morbid fact. He says, if your parachute failed to deploy, or if there was a problem with the deployment, I don't know, um, and it doesn't stop your fall. If someone's going parachuting tonight, God be with you. If you're going to fall, it's not the impact that kills you. It's not the impact that kills you. It's the bounce that kills you. Why? When you hit the ground, your bones break. And it's actually, you go up and you come back down. And when you fall again, your broken bones puncture all of your internal organs. And that's what kills you, says Bob Goff. This is our job as the church. We're the ones who catch people before the bounce. When we fall and hit rock bottom and we are broken, we bounce up. And if we fall down again in our brokenness, that can destroy us. And the job of the church is to rush in and catch us, catch each other on the bounce. So how do we respond well 
when the body suffers, when the body of Christ suffers. If one part suffers, we all suffer. It says, weep with those who weep, mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice. And these seasons, it's helpful to see these seasons, these aren't problems to solve as much as opportunities for faithfulness. David says he will go into God's house in verse four. He remembers going into God's house. And we know now that God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. He's not in the Ark of the Covenant. He's in the hearts of the people. The church isn't just a place, it's a people. And we go to each other and we receive each other. So I wanna say this strongly. If you've been zoned out until now, focus again, eye contact. (laughs) Suffering people need to be able to come, to weep, to mourn, and to cry without being hushed and pushed off to the side. Nor should we do that to ourselves. There's a man who lost all three of his sons at various times in life. He wrote this book called um, a view, sorry, The View from the Hearse. And this is what he says. He's a Christian. I was sitting torn by grief. Someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. Do you know people like this? He said things I knew were true. I was unmoved, except to wish he'd go away. He finally did. Another came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more listened when I said something, answered briefly, prayed simply, and left. I was moved. I was comforted. I hated to see him go. It is not right for us to say to someone suffering, just pull yourself together. We should be gracious and patient with them, and we should be gracious and patient with ourselves. A bruised reed he will not break. So sometimes we just need to show up and shut up. Make a pot of coffee. Do some dishes. And we can do these phases, of course, of um, helping them reorient their hope. But I would say this, most of the time, less is more. And you wait for the Spirit to move you to speak but we need to be people who step in with them and who will lament with them if we have the maturity. So let's let's wrap this up. This week we've looked at how to find God in our disappointment. When situations have not gone as we've liked, when we are still left in this, this current season of misery, of exhaustion, of when our head does not line up with our heart. Maybe you thought that once this lockdown lifts, I will be incredibly happy but the regulations lifted and we, you know, when you went to restaurants and movies and you still kind of feel meh, you still kind of feel shell-shocked and exhausted. Maybe you're disappointed in yourself in this season. Maybe you're disappointed in your family in this season, your friends, maybe God, maybe the state, maybe your employer, maybe the church in this season. How do I find God in my disappointment? We've seen three things so far. Learn to lament, preach to yourself, and finally reorder your hopes. These are not silver bullets. These are not recipes to follow in step. 
These are strategies and tools and depending on your temperament and the season and the cause and how you interact with God, you will use them at different times and they will overlap in different ways. But this is what we've seen today and we're going to be exploring other strategies and tools and patterns of life and habits of the faithful over the coming weeks.